The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. So we'll get into uh, James. Today it is chapter 5, verses 13 to 20. It'll be up on the screen. It's also in the Acts app, and I invite you to open up your Bibles. Okay. Oops. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens have rain, gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Matt. It's great to be back with you. It's really a privilege for me. Um, I, really, I love to come and do this. I, I love to, to teach God's Word. I like to help people understand it and how to apply it to their life. It's one of my favorite things to do, but there's a hazard in doing this kind of thing. There's a, one of the hazards of preaching is that very often God will use the circumstances in my life to teach me a very personal lesson about something that I've, I've just taught on or something that I'm about to teach on. And this actually happened to me last week. The last time that I was here, we looked at a text in James, in James 4, uh, where James warns us about being overconfident and arrogant in the plans that we make, um, and about the importance of acknowledging that God is the one that's in control of our lives. And then several days later, after I was here, uh, I flew to Tampa, Florida, to help a buddy of mine move back from Florida to Austin and uh, had a great plan. The plan was that I would fly into Florida on Wednesday morning and then that night and the next morning we'd load up the truck and then we would leave about 24 hours later and drive back from Tampa to Austin about 24 hours after I arrived. And my flight plan involved changing planes in Atlanta. So if you've never flown through Atlanta, you might not know that Hartsfield-Jackson is not only gigantic, it's also the busiest airport in the world and has been for about 20 years. So I didn't want to have to worry about lugging my bag all around the Atlanta airport, and so I made the decision to check my bag in Austin rather than just carry it on, even though it was small enough to do so. So you can imagine the sinking feeling that I felt in Tampa watching the baggage claim belt just go around and around and my bag was nowhere on it until finally everyone was gone and it was just me standing there and the belt stopped and it was empty and the little doors closed and I was without a bag. And of course, all I could hear in my head was the voice of James going, come now you who say today or tomorrow we'll go to such a a town and you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. So I... I did get my bag 12 hours later, but not before I got this perfect reminder from God that I'm not actually in control of anything and that he's in control of everything. So I hope that God has used this series in your life uh, to strengthen your faith, to teach you lessons about uh, practical faith, and to stir your soul 
toward walking closely with him. Before we look at our final passage in the book of James this morning, I want to take us back to the beginning. Uh, We'll see the parallels between the beginning of the book in chapter 1 and this, the end of the book now in chapter 5 this morning. And what it'll do is it will help us keep the context of the book of James in mind. So the key to interpreting books in the Bible, like the book of James, is that every passage we look at must be interpreted within the context of the theme of the book. Otherwise, you run the risk of coming away with a flawed understanding or with an errant interpretation of the text. So I want to remind us of the context of the book of James this morning. It's found in chapter 1, verses 2 and 4, where James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness or perseverance or endurance. He says, Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So the book of James is instruction in how to live by faith, even through the trials and the struggles of life. The trials and difficulties are inevitable. They're sure to come. We all face trials of some kind. Sometimes they're, they're little and sometimes they're very big. But they come nonetheless. They're inevitable, but they're also profitable if we face them in the right way. And the book of James is about how to face trials the right way. The message is that if we persevere in doing right, especially in the hard times of life, that we'll grow in our faith, and the reward for doing so is that we will achieve spiritual maturity. And that's what James means when he says, let steadfastness have its full effect so that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. He's talking about the idea of spiritual maturity. So some trial comes into my life, and it may be big and it may be small, but in either case, I have a decision to make in that moment. And the decision is whether I'm going to continue to do the right thing. It's whether I'm going to follow God it's wh- and whether I'm going to keep following God, no matter how hard it gets in the face of that problem. But what happens if in the middle of some sort of trial or struggle, I'm trying to persevere, trying to do the right thing, but I get to a point where I don't think I can keep going and where I've, just, I've run out of gas and I've run out of steam and I've run out of energy, and I've done all I can, and I feel like I'm going down, and I'm sinking. What am I supposed to do in that kind of circumstance? James has the answer, and it's in our text this morning. So let's look at God's word together. We're starting at chapter 5, verse 13. He says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And these verses, especially verses 14 and 15, have been the subject of some controversy in the church. There's been some debate throughout church history about what these verses mean and how we're supposed to apply them. And so I want to review some of that this morning. Some Christians use this passage as a proof text to teach that full physical health is only a prayer away. Other Christians, um, on the other side of the spectrum, there's the Roman Catholic tradition in which this passage is used as the basis for the practice of extreme unction. 
So that is the practice of uh, a priest attending to the bedside of a dying person and administering last rites and giving them an opportunity to go to heaven when they die. Those are sort of the two extreme views on the poles. There's a third view, um, which would be relating this process outlined by James, praying and anointing with oil, to the modern practice of invoking God and using medicine. So instead of praying and anointing with oil, it's praying and we're going to consult a physician. So what I want to do briefly is explain some of the confusion and how we can, we've come to varying interpretations of the text and then give you my interpretation. And it will be my opinion. So I want to delineate here where I'm going to tell you this is my opinion. I do think that this is a, a legitimate translation of the text but there's some confusion about how the text has been translated. So the root of this confusion has to do with what James meant by his use of the word that is translated sick in verse 14. Nearly every English translation of the Bible translates this word sick. Even the best word-for-word literal translations like the New American Standard and the ESV that we preach out of here at Acts, the Greek word astheneo, gets translated sick in verse 14. That word is used 34 times in the New Testament. And it literally means to be weak or to be without strength. It's used in the Gospels to refer to bodily weakness and including illness. So sick can be a legitimate translation of the word. However, the word is used in Acts and in other epistles in the New Testament to refer to different types of weakness. Spiritual weakness, emotional weakness, mental weakness, or a weak conscience. And so in each case, we have to look to the context of the word and to determine the appropriate meaning. And that's what we have to do here in James this morning, where the context is suffering and persevering through trials. So my opinion is that I don't believe that sick is the best translation of the word astheneo in verse 14. I think that weak or weary is a better translation. And the main reason why I think that is that in verse 15, James uses another word which is translated sick. He uses the word komno, and that word literally means to be weary. And the only other New Testament use of komno in Hebrews chapter 12 very clearly emphasizes the meaning of the word as weary. So what we have is we have two different Greek words that are translated to mean sick in James chapter 5. And when we consult the other New Testament uses of these words, the first from verse 14 occasionally means sick, and the second from verse 15 is never used to mean sick uh, in the rest of the New Testament. So I take the concrete meaning of the second word to clarify the cloudier meaning of the first word in verse 14. And additionally, it's worth noting that the word save here uh, does not refer to salvation from hell, but it refers to the idea of deliverance, as emphasized by the phrase, the Lord will raise him up. So I would translate 14 and 15 this way. Is anyone among you weary or tired or without strength? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will deliver the weary soul and the Lord will raise him up. Now, understanding the meaning of these two words becomes more important when we consider that James's prescription for the weary person is that he should call the elders of the church and have them anoint his head with oil. And the Greek word translated anoint in verse 14 is not the word for ceremonial anointing as by a priest. It's the common word. It's the same word that is used in Luke chapter 7, a woman put oil on Jesus' feet, or the host would put oil on 
on the head of one of his guests. Uh, Or in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus says, listen, when you fast, don't do it the way the hypocrites do, where they disfigure their faces and they mess their hair up and they go out and people are like, why do you look so terrible? And they go, oh, I'm fasting. I'm just so spiritual. Uh, Jesus says, instead, anoint your head with oil. Put oil on your head. So like, put on your gel and go about your life. So it's not the ceremonial use of the word here, it's the common use, just means literally to put oil on it. So a modern equivalent of this would be, you know, wash up and put on some aftershave. Uh, James's point here is that the weary person would be refreshed and would be encouraged uh, by the elders who rubbed oil on his head and prayed for him. Now, you might be wondering, why do I bother nitpicking about these little translational issues? Why is this so important? Why would I bore you with all of this talk about Greek words? And the answer is that if we take a narrow interpretation of this text, and because we take a narrow interpretation of the text, we take a narrow application of the text. That is, if we take it to only mean physically sick individuals, then what we're doing is we're taking an application of the text that does not cover the full spectrum of what James is getting at here. So look very closely with me at what James says at the end of verse 15 and the beginning of verse 16. Second part of 15, he says, If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So see, and you thought the book of James was all law and no gospel. Here it is right here. If he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. It's obvious from the immediate context in verse 15 that the healing James mentions here in verse 16 is not, he's not referring to the healing of the body. He's referring to the healing of the soul. It's not about physical restoration. James is making a point about spiritual restoration. He's making a gospel point. And so that's why I believe that this section, verses 14 through 16, is not talking about physical restoration, but spiritual restoration. James is saying, look, I know you're facing trials in your life. I know that you're facing struggles, and I know that it's hard. So if you're weary, or if you're hurting, or depressed, or anxious, or if you're confused, or if you're bitter, or exhausted, or mourning, or if you're spiritually beaten down and ashamed, or if you're lonely, if there's something causing you distress in your life and in your soul, then call your people, your community together, call the elders of your church, and have them pray, and God will lift you up. So James's prescription for that sinking feeling, that going down feeling in the midst of trials and suffering, is to seek help from God and to seek help from others, those around us. Let's look at the rest of verse 16. He says, The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it is working. So what makes a man righteous? That's the question I have when I read this verse. James says, A righteous man's prayers are effective and have great power. So I want to know, what makes a man righteous? How can I ensure that my prayers will be effective and that God will hear them? Do you have an answer for that question? What makes a man righteous? This may be one of the most important questions that we need to have an answer for as people of God. What does God say makes a man righteous? Genesis 15, 6. Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as what? As righteousness. Faith. Faith is what makes a man righteous in the sight of God. And that invitation is open this morning. 
So God doesn't look at us and see some hierarchy of spiritual people with really impressive people on the top and some kind of middling people and then some really disappointing people down at the bottom. God assesses whether we're righteous based on one criteria. It's the criteria of faith. James gives a different example from the Old Testament in verse 17. He says, Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. That's effective prayer. And he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. So Elijah was a man of extraordinary faith. We think back on the story of Elijah from the Old Testament. He performed miracles. You remember 1 Kings 18? All the people of Israel had turned away from following the Lord, and they'd all turned to a false god named Baal, and all the other prophets of the Lord had died off, and Elijah's the only one left, and he has this showdown with all of the false prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Do you remember the story? He prays, and he calls fire down from heaven, and the entire nation recognizes that the Lord is the one true God. And then Elijah goes, and he slaughters all the false prophets, all 450 of them. It's awesome. It's fun and safe for the whole family story. And he has this really high point in his life, maybe the climax of his ministry. And in the very next chapter, Elijah is running for his life because the queen is so angry and she's threatened his life and he's running and he gets so depressed that he prays and he actually asks God to take his life. In a a matter of, of verses, Elijah goes from maybe the high point of his ministry to one of the lowest lows where a person can go in life. Elijah, in his life, he had his ups and his downs just like we have. And he faced trials and suffering just like we do. But the most important similarity between us and Elijah is that we worship and we serve the same great God. And it's our faith in our great God that makes us righteous. So that's James's prescription for those who are falling into despair in the face of trials of, of life. He says we ought to ask others to pray in faith for us for our deliverance. Now, here in the last two verses of the letter, James gives a prescription for how we ought to deal in the church with those who have strayed or who have wandered into sin. And I want you to notice the tenderness and the encouragement in the tone of James's words. He says, my brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of of sins. So those who've lost their way are the sick ones of the church. They're the sick ones in the family. They've wandered away. The Greek word for wander is the same word that we get the word planet from. The Greeks use the word to distinguish between some celestial bodies that move, that seem to wander, and others, stars, that are fixed in one place in the sky. So wandering ones need to be brought back into the fold. James isn't referring here to evangelism. He's referring to revival, to restoration, for people who are already in the family of God and who have wandered away. It's a restoration to spiritual health. It's a restoration to being brought back to the path towards spiritual maturity. And perhaps most importantly, he's talking about being restored to the community of God and being brought back into the family. So the application here isn't to go after some wandering person and to preach at them and to heckle them and to pester them and to shame and guilt them. But the application is to go and to very gently warn 
them of the danger of drifting out into sin and warn them of the damage that it can do in their life. So James says that two things happen when we lovingly pursue those who are wandering away from the path of following Christ. First, he says, whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death. It's critical, we have to note here, that in the book of James, death is not a euphemism for hell. Death is defined in James as life separate from God, separate from the plan of God, separate from the purposes of God, separate from the authority of God, separate from the blessings of God. It's a life lived on my own terms, uh, by my own agenda, apart from what I know God desires and what God wants for me. And as a result, because I'm living a disobedient life, I don't get the blessings of obedience that come from living life on God's terms. And James likens that to spiritual death here on earth. So when we go after those who are wandering off into sin and when we pursue them lovingly and gently, we can spare them some very devastating consequences. We're not talking about eternal consequences. We're talking about the right now consequences that can come from sin and that can come from making destructive choices. And he says, the second thing he says, whoever brings back a sinner uh, from his wandering will, he says, he'll cover a multitude of sins. So these could be sins that could hurt the individual, Sins that could hurt others, sins that could hurt their family, uh, sins that could hurt their children, their friends, sins that could hurt the reputation of Christ. The word cover in verse 20 means to hide. So the image here is the image of laying a veil over that person so that they wouldn't, when they come back into the family of God, they wouldn't be identified by the sinful lifestyle that they were living, but instead be identified by the love that they were shown by the person who brought them back. So in other words, the covering the multitude of sins is so that that person would be seen by the community the same way that God sees them, as covered by the righteousness of Christ. Now, if you're like me, you read the book of James, and it seems like it's all law and no gospel. And you read all of these instructions and experience all of this conviction, and it's just a spiritual bloodbath. I mean, no one walks away from the book of James unscathed when it comes to uh, these sorts of things. And, and you come away thinking, man, Christian life is really hard. It's really hard. Well, I've got news for you this morning. The Christian life is not hard. Christian life is not hard. The Christian life is not even difficult. The Christian life is impossible. There's only been one guy in the history of the world who ever pulled it off. And if you didn't know, we named it after him. So when we're trying to walk closely with God, and when we're trying to be obedient, and when we're trying to be faithful, and when we're trying to persevere in the midst of struggles, we need others around us to remind us of the truth of the gospel. And that truth is that God loves each of us as we are right now, and not as we should be, because none of us is as we should be. Believing that truth is what frees us to obey, and it's what frees us to pursue God and to walk in obedience without fear of punishment or without fear of disapproval from God, because he delights in even the smallest steps in obedience along the journey. He's for us, and he is behind us, and he's empowering us with grace. So as we come to the Lord's table together this morning, let's thank him for his grace.
let's ask him for his help to have a practical faith through the trials and the struggles of life. Would you pray with me before we approach the table? Lord, we know that life is hard. We know it's out of our control. We know our lives are in your hands, and we know that in the world we'll face trouble, but we thank you that you are with us and that you are for us. God, we ask you for your grace. Forgive us for the ways that we fall short of meeting the standard. Forgive us for the ways that that we fail to do the good thing that we know we ought to do. We also pray that you would give us grace to strengthen us as we seek to live lives that are a testament to your mercy and a testament to your goodness in the sight of all men. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at axechurchleander.com.